You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. Good morning. It's great to be with you, and uh, if you have your Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 13, and we're going to be headed to the Old Testament this morning, and I just want to begin as you're turning there by saying um, how thankful I am to be here. As uh, your pastor mentioned, my name is Ian Hales, and I bring greetings from Redemption Church Durham, which is in uh, Canada, just outside of Toronto, and uh, my wife and I and our kids have been here all week, which has been just enough time to thaw out. Uh, so we're very, very thankful. I don't know how you deal with this heat in the afternoon. It's insane. Um, but we are really, really grateful. We have been so blessed uh, being here. And uh, I want to just say thank you, too, uh, for having me here. Um, I don't know you. You don't know me. But I know enough about you because of what you're doing for your pastor to, to say that I think you guys are a really sweet church who love the Lord. Um, it is such a gift that you have given to your pastor and his family uh, to go on sabbatical. It is a tremendous blessing to them. And so I just want to thank you for the way you're serving them. Um, I, I just know what it's like to have a church that cares so well for their pastor. And I just want to encourage you in that. It's a blessing. I trust that you're going to reap the benefits of that as he and his family are refreshed and renewed. And they come back reinvigorated to serve you well, like I know is their heart to do. I'm really thankful to, uh, for the Great Commission Collective, the network of churches we're a part of. Uh, there's so many good, godly men, pastors in our fellowship that I'm so thankful for and I look up to in a, in a number of different ways. And your pastor is no different. I, I'm really thankful for Blair. I'm thankful for his heart for you. He, he loves you, uh, your church. Um, and he loves the Lord. He loves his word. I'm so encouraged by his desire to see uh, the Word of God handled well, to train up men to handle God's Word well. Uh, you are blessed. I hope you know this. You're blessed to have the pastor you do. And, uh, and I, I think it's really important that we have people in our lives to look up to. In fact, I actually think it's a very biblical thing to look up to people in our lives, people who can be models to us in a number of different ways, in a number of different areas in our lives. Uh, sometimes our models are really good and, and they're there for a season. Other times, maybe they're not as good as we thought they were. Uh, when I was a kid, um, I, I wanted to be like Mike. Okay, some of you get that. Some of you like, listen, Michael Jordan, okay? There was a whole thing, commercials and everything. Everybody wanted to be like Mike, and I was no different. Um, I, I was a young kid, elementary school. I, I wanted to, to be like Michael Jordan in every way possible. I played basketball, and, and I, I, you know, if you went into my bedroom, I had posters of Michael Jordan everywhere. I mean, I, as a kid, I just so desperately wanted to do everything like Michael Jordan. And, and one of the things I wanted so badly was a Michael Jordan jersey. And, I, and I, I couldn't afford one as a kid, and my parents never got me one. I don't know why, but uh, we, every time we went to the U.S. as kids, we used to cross the border, and uh, we'd go to the outlet malls. And this was at the time, believe it or not, when the Canadian dollar was on par with the American dollar, which is saying something, because now it's crazy. But, but we'd go to these outlet stores, and I would scour these outlets for a Michael Jordan jersey, which obviously, you know, you're not going to get a Michael Jordan jersey at an outlet mall. And, and, and so I settled as a kid for an ugly Phoenix Suns jersey. 
and it was just, and I didn't even like Charles Barkley. And I, I wore that thing pretending I was Michael Jordan. And, and you know, one of the things I loved about Michael Jordan, I, I used to watch all his you know, documentaries. I knew everything about his life. And as a young kid, the one thing that stuck out to me um, was that Michael Jordan, he failed to make his first high school basketball team. And the reason that stuck out for me was because that event, that failure, became formative in his life. It's so much so, right? That failure could have crushed him, and he could have just kind of dropped everything. But instead, it fueled him to become the greatest basketball player of all time. That's right, kids. LeBron James can't hold a candle to Michael Jordan, okay? <laughs> so, amen. Yes, praise the Lord. That's come on. <laughs> But, but I, I, I think it's so helpful to consider, listen, how failure does not have to destroy our lives. It can actually fuel even our spiritual lives. And when we see that in the life of Abram in Genesis chapter 13, and, and it's interesting because the, the, the New Testament actually gives us a list of heroes in the faith. Do you realize that? In Hebrews chapter 11, you, you can read about it. Uh, people call it the, the hall of faith. And really what it is, it's a list of Old Testament individuals who exemplify and model for us lives of faith in the Lord. But one of the things you'll realize, if you were to read that list and go back and look at all of those individuals' lives, you'll recognize really quickly that not one of them had perfect faith. They all had many failures of faith. And they, their lives were much like our lives. Isn't that encouraging, right? That the heroes of the faith, the father of the faith, Abraham, he, he was a man, a human being just like us, who had sin and frailty and failure, and yet God was kind enough to use a man like that. How encouraging that God can take failures in the faith and make them faithful to him. You know, I think the saddest part, the most tragic part of the Christian life is not falling into sin. It's failing to renew our faith after we've fallen into sin. And too many of us, we get dragged down by our sin. We spiral out of control in our sin. And we fail to see that what God wants to do is renew our faith in him. To pull us out of the muck and mire that we've fallen into. And I trust that maybe this would be encouraging to some of you this morning. I know it's encouraging to me because our heroes of the faith, they dealt with the same kind of things we did. And we need to be encouraged by them in the same way. Because listen, the Christian life is hard. Every one of us has lapses of faith. Every one of us has struggles with sin, and every one of us, therefore, must renew our faith regularly. In fact, renewing our faith in the Lord is one of the regular rhythms of the Christian life. It's something that's normative, something that we all need to learn to do faithfully before our God. I want to show you that in our text this morning. I want to show you three ways we are to renew our faith, and I want to begin by reading in Genesis chapter 13, just the first seven verses, we'll take this a chunk at a time. And I want to show you first that renewing your faith requires that you return to your faithful God. It requires that you return to your faithful God. Look at verse 1, and we'll read through verse 7 together. It says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. 
And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. I want us to, to first just kind of pay attention to the context here. Verse 1 actually draws us into the context. You'll notice it said this, says this, so Abram went up from Egypt. Now, if you're going up from Egypt, what does that imply? You first went down into Egypt. Now, I want to get there, but we need to quickly work our way through the first 12 chapters of Genesis to understand what's happening here. So just a kind of broad overview, we know how the, the Bible begins. In Genesis 1, God creates all things good. Everything is, is good, but really quickly, human beings mess it up. Adam and Eve, they fall into sin. They rebel against God. They plunge humanity into the curse of sin. And then so from chapter 2 all the way through chapter 11, what we see is this depiction of humanity that is under the curse of sin. Sin is pervasive, it's destructive, and it's leading people to rebel more and more against God. I mean, so much so that humanity really quickly um, needs to be wiped off the face of the earth. God starts again, he, he floods the earth, he starts again with a man named Noah. And if you think it's going to get any better from Noah, all of a sudden we see in chapters 10 and 11, all of humanity again unites against God in a common effort, in rebellion. And what do they do? They build this great tower. They, they try to display their own power, their rejection of God. And so God, he, he curses them, in a sense, by scattering them across the world. And at the end of chapter 11, we're kind of left with this picture. Well, what's the hope for humanity? I mean, how, how do we get back to that good creation that was at the beginning? And it enters uh, the scene in chapter 12, this man named Abram. Now, one of the things you have to know about Abram is that God calls him to, uh, to, to, to lead a kind of new creation picture here. But one of the things you have to know about Abram is that he wasn't a, a good, righteous, godly man when God called him. In fact, the Bible tells us in Genesis 12 that God called Abram out of a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. Joshua tells us that Abram was a pagan idol worshiper. So, so here we have this man who is undeserving, but by the grace of God, God calls him out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he calls him, listen, to leave everything to follow him. Sound familiar? Leave everything that's comfortable and convenient. Leave your home. Leave all the, 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 the ease of life that you had. Leave the gods that you served. Come and follow me. And the awesome picture of Abram is that he is a man of faith and he follows Yahweh God. And in chapter 12, what we see is that God makes Abram a promise. He says to Abram, I'm going to give you three things. I'm going to promise you land. I'm going to promise you offspring. And I'm going to promise that you're going to be a blessing to the nations. Why all those three things? Well, that's bringing us right back to the Garden of Eden. What God is promising is to reverse the curse that destroyed the goodness of Eden. And he's going to do it through this man named Abram, which is really just an extension of the promise that God gave to Eve in Genesis 3.15, that, that an offspring would be born of this woman, and he would crush the head of the serpent, though his heel would be bruised. Well, here, that promise is going to come to fruition through this man named Abram. Now, God gives this awesome promise to Abram, and you think, great, now Abram's going to walk faithfully before his God, and then what do we see? What's the next thing we read about in Genesis chapter 12? Abram makes a mess of his life. I mean, you, you could, if you were to title this section of Scripture in Genesis 12, it, it's this. It's Sister Wives Episode 1, okay? <laughs> episode 1. There's a second episode, okay? It's crazy. 
So he goes down, chapter 12, into Egypt, which sounds ominous, and it's supposed to. He goes down into Egypt, and it's a kind of exodus event in the life of Abraham. He, he's being driven by fear. This is what you need to know, okay? His there's a famine in the land. His circumstances are controlling him. He's not trusting God, and so what does he do? He doesn't seek God. He doesn't trust God. He doesn't stay in the land. Instead, he goes down into Egypt, and he makes a mess of his life, but God is faithful to redeem him out of his own mess, from his own sin. And so now what we see in chapter one of verse, or chapter 13, verse 1, is he's coming up. He's, he's moving out of Egypt. He's going back towards the promised land. And this whole disastrous episode now behind him, he goes up to the promised land. And what you have to see here is this. There's a, a reversal taking place in the life of Abram. He's going to Egypt, into Egypt in the first place, listen, because his mind was set on earthly things, on his circumstances, but now he's coming out of Egypt and his mind is reset on heavenly things. Abram is returning to his faithful God, and I just want to make a quick maybe point of observation here that I think you'll be able to relate to. Isn't it amazing how we can move from incredible faith to incredible failure in the Christian life? Um, can you not relate to that? You can be riding the highs of faith. You can be doing so well in the Lord. And, and then all of a sudden, those words that you forgot that Paul wrote in the New Testament, be careful when you think you're standing firm because no temptation has seized you except that is common to man. Right? How easy it is to go from being on the spiritual high to all of a sudden almost destroying our lives. But I want you to see this because it's so much more important. How awesome is it that God can take us, listen, from epic failure to renewed faith? And that's what we see in Abram's life. That, that, listen, your failures, they don't have to be the end of your story. Your failures and your sin don't have to define your life. God wants to renew your faith. So how do we do that? I think we see that in three ways here. First is this, we need to walk the old path. Abram literally, if you caught this, he retraces his steps back to the Negev and to Bethel and Ai. And, and the picture we're supposed to see is this, that he's literally walking back on the same path he took when he walked away from the promised land. He, he's going in the exact opposite direction here. It's interesting, uh, twice in the narrative here, in verses 3 and 4, you can, you can look at it with me. He, he makes a point to kind of make this emphasis that this mirrored his earlier travels. You'll notice the language that he goes to Bethel to the place where his tent had been. Notice this, at the beginning. Verse 4, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. One commentator says it like this, that Abram should take such care indicated his desire to recover his experience with God. This path of reflection reflects Abram's genuine repentance and renewed faith. He's returning. And in the Old Testament, um, the word for return is also translated as repent. And we're familiar with the word repent, right? In the Christian life, hopefully you're familiar with that. That's a common practice in your life. But you need to see the vivid imagery that's embedded here in this text. You see, what's happening when we repent is this, that we turn our back and we walk away from God. You know, metaphorically speaking, we're walking down into Egypt, away from the goodness of the Lord. But all of a sudden, we're struck, right, aren't we? And when we come face to face with our sin and we stop, and, and the answer is to pause to return and to walk back in the direction that we were first coming from. This is the picture of repentance in the Christian life. 
we go back to where we were at the beginning, at the first. We return to our faithful God. And I want you to consider this path. This is a long journey for Abram. He's walking this journey. He's not taking an airplane. He's going to walk by all these landmarkers. And imagine as he walked on this journey, every step he took and he walked by these landmarkers, he was being reminded that this was the path he walked away from God. The shame he must have felt, man, man, I can't believe I did this. I almost ruined my life. I can't believe I didn't trust the Lord. But I want you to see this too. Every step back to God, he was being reminded of the faithfulness of his God. How good is my God? How faithful is my God? My God is filled with mercy and grace and steadfast loving kindness. My God is going to receive me back because he is a good and faithful God. Maybe you can think of it like this in your own life. Listen, returning to God requires a walk of shame as we remember our sin, but it turns into a walk of praise as we remember his grace. And if I can draw out this metaphor of, of walking a little further, let me give you some steps to take. The first step on this walk of renewing your faith and returning to the, the Lord is simply this. It's admit your sin. Admit your sin. I mean, that's where all true repentance and returning to the Lord begins. You have to come face to face with your sin. And you need to recognize the seriousness of your sin. Now, I, I want to maybe say something that's a little bit controversial here, but I, I think that sometimes our repent. You ever wonder why in your life, you're like, man, I, I am repenting, but nothing seems to be changing. Like, I don't seem to be progressing. I just keep falling back into the same sin over and over and over. I just never seem to be making any progress. There's no traction. You ever wonder why that's happening? I think one of the reasons that happens in our lives is because we, we often leapfrog over our sin directly to God's grace. Now, that sounds very controversial, but bear with me for a minute, okay? Here's what I'm saying. We, we need to learn to linger a little longer in our sin before we move to God's grace and here's, here's why, listen, because it's coming face to face with our sin. When we recognize the seriousness of our sin, when we feel the weight of our sin, when we recognize the cost of our sin, that then and only then can we truly appreciate the greatness of God's grace. And I just wonder maybe if, if you're not making progress because you're just not, allow, not allowing the sin to sit heavy enough upon your heart. L listen, let me make it like this. Cheap sin leads to cheap grace. But, but listen, I, I don't want to, don't hear me wrong, okay? We, we, we got to linger a little longer, but don't loiter in your sin, okay? You can't stay there, and when you truly come face to face with your sin, and you feel the weight and brokenness over your sin, you rush into God's grace, and you can truly rejoice and appreciate the goodness of God's grace. He's so kind to forgive. Secondly, we need to worship the old way. We've got to walk the old path, but we need to worship the old way. I wonder if you kind of caught what Abram was doing here. He's not just walking back to the old places. He's going back to do the old things. And he goes back to these places where he's built altars. Now, altars are places of worship. They're symbolic of, of worship in a, in a variety of different ways. But he goes back to do what he did earlier. He goes back to these places and he's being reminded, this is where I worship the Lord, where I was dedicating myself to the Lord. Why, why to these places of worship? Well, I, I like what D.A. Carson says, a New Testament scholar. He says this, we worship our way into sin. We must worship our way out of sin. I don't know if you realize that, but do you know that all of your sin struggles are a result of some kind of worship in your heart? A failure to worship God as God, Paul says this in, in Romans 
and instead it's, it's a worship of something else other than God. And, and so when your heart is worshiping, is loving, has affection for something more than God or, or other than God, what happens is that thing is going to become an idol in your heart and you will do whatever it takes to get that thing. And the antidote is actually not just stopping worship of false idols, it's actually truly worshiping the one true and living God. And I think that's what we see here. And I think we see this, listen, it, turning from your sin is really good, but turning your face to God in worship is transformative in your life. An altar was a place of worship because it was a place of sacrifice. It was a place where an animal was sacrificed, and it was a reminder that this is where sin is being atoned for. A pure and spotless animal was being given up, and, they were, and, and here we were being reminded again, listen, that though we are great sinners, our God is a great Savior. We have incredible failures, but God offers incredible forgiveness. And I want to give you a second step on this walk. Not only do you need to admit your sin, secondly, you need to ask for forgiveness. It's one thing to admit your sin. It's an entirely different thing to come and ask God in humility for forgiveness. And that's really what's being exemplified here. He's recognizing his sins need to be atoned for. He needs forgiveness from his sins. And in this side of the cross, we don't go to a place to atone for our sins, right? We go to a person, amen? We go to Jesus Christ. And I want you to consider this for a minute. Listen, that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was actually laid upon the altar of a cross, where his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. He, he died in our place. He paid the full weight of sin, the full price for our sin. He suffered the wrath of God in our place. And, and listen, some of you here today, you don't need to be renewed in your faith. You actually need faith. You've not yet trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And maybe you think, I'm too far gone. My, my sins are too great. My failures are too many. And what God wants you to hear today is, listen, his grace is greater than all of your sin. And you can come to him. He, he sent his one and only son out of love for you to die in your place. He'll pay for all of your sin. He'll give you all of his righteousness. All you need to do is place your faith and trust completely in him. The altar is also a place of surrender. And I want you to see that if, if you recognize that it's a place of surrender, right? He would have walked to this altar. He would have given a, a, likely a whole burnt offering on this altar, which again was symbolic. Like, God, all of me is for all of you. You deserve it all. I want you to take everything, God. It's a sweet picture of what true worship is in the, the, the Christian heart. And I think if we can see that he believed God was going to accept his offering, then we can do this step three and step four. We can appreciate the cross from the New Testament perspective. I want you again to, to consider this. He believed when he offered the sacrifice that God would accept the sacrifice. He believed that this was a forgiving God. And I want you to just think for a moment, how do we know that God has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us? How do we know for sure? It's the resurrection, isn't it? The resurrection is the stamp of approval that God not only received payment, he took it, he received it, and he's accepted it. And it's, it's a guarantee for us that God forgives our sins. He's overcome sin and death. He's victorious. We've sang about it. He's victorious over them all. 
And we need to learn to appreciate what Jesus has done for us, giving his life for ours, securing for us eternal redemption. And that means that we can do step four. We can actually accept his grace. And some of us struggle with this so much. We actually stay in our sin. We can't get past the shame of our sin, the condemnation of our sin. But what God wants some of you to hear today is this. Listen, that you, listen on your best days and your worst days, if you're in Christ, you stand in grace today. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any less, nothing you can do to make him love you any more. You stand in grace. You're accepted and approved. Your identity is not in what you've done. It's in what Jesus Christ has done for you. And you need to live in that grace. And if you get that grace, you can do this next. You can wage the old war. You can wage the old war. And this is essential for renewing our faith. You see, if we have accepted God's grace it means we can take this final step and advance God's purposes. And this is really what renewed faith ultimately looks like. It's saying, okay, God, I tried my way. I did things my way, but now I'm recommitting to your way, to your will. And we see here in this last part of this first seven verses that Abram, he faces another trial. And I want you to, to just remember this in your own life. Listen, renewed faith is often followed by new opportunities to fall. Satan wants nothing more for you to renew your faith than, than to take you right down. And, and you need to expect that struggles will remain and that God is going to strengthen you for the battles, but God wants you to get back up and get back in the battle. Put on the armor of God. Wage the old war. The war against what? Against unbelief, against independence, against selfishness, against sin. This is what led Abram into the path of sin in the first place and away from the presence of God. And what God is going to do is test him in a similar way. And the question that he's wanting to ask is this, and he wants to ask this of all of us, will it be different this time? Will you trust me this time? Will you obey me this time? Renewed faith requires renewed purpose. And renewed faith, renewing your faith requires that you secondly do this, resist your foolish greed. You need to resist your foolish greed. And here we see in verse 8 through 13 that greed creeps up quickly. It says this, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. A Lot is the nephew of Abram, if you didn't know. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, and while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The strife here begins to kind of erupt between the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot. Um, they're, they're growing in size and in number, and, and it seems like the land maybe can't hold both of their flocks together. And so they have this discussion about going their separate ways. And what you need to see here in this section is that really what's being used here is the language of decision. It's time to decide which direction you're going to go. 
And I need you to maybe consider this in your own life, that when renewing your faith, you need to expect that God will continue testing your faith. And you need to expect that he's often going to uh, test you where you are most prone to fail. Do you ever wonder why you, you kind of have the, the same sin struggles over and over again? You're like, it's the same issues. Like, I don't know, maybe for you it's anger. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's, it's covetousness. Maybe it's greed and, and worldliness. Or maybe, you know, who, who knows what it might be for you, but whatever it is, you kind of s- s- tend to struggle or slip up in that particular area. You ever wonder, like, why is this still happening? Why can't I get past this? I, uh, I'm assuming it's the same here in the U.S. than it is in Canada. You've got to take a, a driver's test to get a license here, right? All of you, like, you've got a license, I hope you took a test, yeah? Okay, okay, okay. Who, any of you, um, this is going to be a real test of, of humility here. Anybody fail their driver's test? Okay. All right. Get a handful of you. All right. I, I appreciate the humility. God blesses the humble. Some of you lied in here and God opposes the proud, but that's okay. Uh, I had a friend who failed the driver's test three times in a row. And I think if you fail three times in a row, you should not be allowed to get a license after that. Like three strikes and you're out. Some of you, I'm just, see, you want to drive with people like that on the road? Okay, fine. <laughs> Maybe in Texas, all right, you got more faith than I do. Fair enough. But, but you ever wonder, like, when do, you, when do you stop having to take the driver's test? When you pass the test. Did you ever wonder why God has you continuing to struggle with the same things over and over and over again? I, I think, first of all, it's because that's the area in your life that tends to pull you away from God fastest and pull you furthest. It's the area of temptation that the the Lord knows this is what's competing for your heart, for your affection, for your worship. And I know that if I don't get a hold of this in your life, you will never become the man or woman of God I desire you to be. And so what am I going to do out of love for you? I'm going to keep giving you the test over and over and over and over again. Why? Because I want you to pass the test. And, and I'm not promising, listen, that, if, if, that you're, you're, you just you know, magically never struggle with that sin area again in your life. That's, that's not true. But here's what I know for sure. When you start passing the test in an area where you've been so prone to fail, it is evidence of the power of God at work in your life. It is evidence of a growing faith in your life. It is evidence of a growing love for the Lord in your life. And that is powerful, isn't it? I mean, that, that just, that motivates you. That builds spiritual momentum in your life. When you start seeing victory you know, through the power and grace of God, what does that do? It fuels your faithfulness to the Lord. It fuels the mission of God in your life. And so God wants you, listen, if you're struggling with a particular area of sin in your life right now, God is saying to you, I want you to pass the test. And I'm not going to let up on this area because this is what I'm competing with for your heart. And I want all of you. And I want it devoted to all of me. It's interesting here that it's our our foolish greed that gets in the way of making the right decision so often, isn't it? We want what we want. We want what we think we need instead instead of doing what we know to be right and true and best. Abram wants to preserve harmony here, and he demonstrates extraordinary humility in this display. Now, in, in the cultural context, Abram is the elder. Okay, Lot's his nephew. He's younger than him. And in the cultural context in particular, I mean, the right thing to do would be to let the elder choose the direction he wants to go. It should have been Abram going, hey, Lot, listen, I'm older. You need to respect me. I'm going to choose what I want, and you can have the leftovers. But what does he do here? 
He does the opposite of that. He displays incredible humility. He says, Lot, you go ahead and you choose, and I'll take whatever you don't have. Not only is this incredible humility, here's what's so powerful in this text. It demonstrates incredible faith in the Lord. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, well here's, here's what he's offering up to Lot. He's offering to Lot the potential to choose the land that's promised to him. And you know what he's saying in this? Abram is saying, even if Lot chooses the land that God promised me, I believe God is so faithful. I believe God will be true to his word. I believe that even though it seems humanly impossible, God will give me what he promised. Oh, that's powerful. It's in many ways the same thing we see him doing in Genesis 22. Do you remember the story when he has Isaac, the promised child? Right? By the way, he's like 100 years old when he has this child. His wife is 90. So he's like, beyond the age of childbearing, this is impossible. And what does God tell him to do? I want you to take this child up this mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him. And here's Abram at the top of the mountain, and he's holding the knife. He's about ready to kill his own son. And then God stops him. But you want to know what the author, you say, how could you do that? How could God, or how could Abram do that? The author of Hebrews tells us this, that Abram believed so powerfully in the promise of God that he knew that even if he killed his own son, God would raise him back to life. That's how much he believed in the promise of God. And I just, I wonder if some of you need to hear this today, that, listen, I don't know what you're facing. I don't know how impossible your situation seems. I don't know how tempted you are to believe that you need to do things your way instead of trust God's way. But listen, we serve the God of the impossible. God is able to do what he promises to do for you. And he wants you to trust him. He wants you to renew your faith in him. It's interesting here that Lot is actually shown to be arrogant and worldly in this passage, choosing according to appearances. Did you notice that? In fact, Lot's decision is kind of told in this very foreboding manner uh, with actually allusions back to the Garden of Eden. And the language is, is very similar to Eve in the Garden. It's kind of like a, renew, like a fall all over again. What does Eve do? She looks and she sees that the fruit is good to her eyes and she takes what God has not given her. And here in this very same way, it is Lot who looks and sees. It's good to his eyes. And what does he do? He doesn't think about God, what's about what's pleasing to God. He doesn't trust God. He just takes in accordance with appearances. And what's crazy here is that it's actually described with allusions to Eden itself. It looks like the, the garden of God. And don't miss that his eyes are fixed toward the east. Now, if, if you know anything about the book of Genesis, you know this, that going east from the garden of Eden is never a good thing. It's depicting, right, that the man was kicked out of the gate that was at the east of the garden. So when you see humanity moving east, it's a depiction that they're moving away from the presence of God. And so everything here in this text is telling us that Lot is choosing according to appearances and not according to faith. He's choosing the world and not choosing God. It sounds very, very similar to what James says, right? That, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And Lot is depicting this kind of thinking. And maybe you can be reminded like, like me today that just because it looks good doesn't mean it is good. How often do we put our physical desires above our spiritual desires? We take our physical desires and we put them above our spiritual well-being and the, the passions of the flesh. We know this, right? They wage war against the spirit of God within us. And how often does the, the, the passion of the flesh win? But how often does this lead us to absolute disaster? And verse 10 actually wants us to see this. The irony here is amazing. 
What Lot chooses based on outward appearances will soon be consumed by fire. And he's saying here that you can choose to be like Lot who doesn't trust the Lord and is quarrelsome. He's fixed only on what he can see with his eyes. He's only concerned about the riches of this world and he's unaware of the destructive dangers of worldliness. Or he's saying you can be like Abram who walks by faith and not by sight. But this requires that we resist our foolish greed for this world. I mean, Jesus said it like this, didn't he? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Lot chooses from a human perspective, and he's taking the best of the land. And, and it's crazy because he's choosing to dwell in the cities of the wicked rather than dwell in the land with the righteous. Abram, instead, he's acting in faith. Again, he knew that even if God, excuse, he knew that even if he gave the whole land away, God would still give it to him and his descendants. You know, Abram is really depicting for us what. What Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, that we need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and believe that all these things will be added unto us. Abram's living that out, this kind of faith and seeking God first. And, and I wonder how often, listen, we're consumed with seeking this world instead of seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And, and I can't help but think, you know, C.S. Lewis, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, he says, you know, we're, we're so easily satisfied. We're so easily satisfied. We're like a little kid who's, who's content to splash around in a, a mud puddle over here when we could be enjoying a holiday at the sea. You know, we're like playing around in Canada when we could be in Texas. Amen. <laughs> we just were too easily satisfied. We need the, the kind of faith that Abram displays here. We need to believe, listen, that what God promises by faith, it's better by far than what sin and Satan offer through selfishness. It's, it's always better to believe God. We need to resist our foolish greed if we're going to renew our faith. And lastly, we need to remember our future guarantee. Here God reassures Abram of what he has already been guaranteed. Verse 14, look at what it says. It says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your, your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and he came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. He reaffirms his promise to give Abram the land, offspring. And the implied idea here too is blessing. These verses continue to show this contrast between Abram and Lot. And, and earlier, Lot had been active, remember, in examining the land. Remember, it was Lot who looked across the land and who took what he wanted. Now, in contrast, it's God who's telling Abram to look. And it's God who's saying, I will give it to you. You know, it's so much better to wait for what the Lord promises than to simply look and take what he has not offered you. Now, the Lord is being gracious to him. And one of the things we see here that's so fascinating in this passage is that there's a sense in which Abram's faith became sight. 
he walks the land. Did you notice that? And don't you love the language? Like to the north, to the south, to the east, and the west, the length and the breadth. Like just look as far as the eye can see. Everything here will one day be yours and your offsprings forever. Now arise and walk through the land. He takes him on a tour of Israel. Like, why does he do that? Well, because he's symbolically taking possession of it. He's not receiving it now, but symbolically as he walks through the land, God's saying, this is going to be yours. All of it's going to be yours. And he's demonstrating here a renewed faith in the Lord. God, I'm waiting for what you have promised me. I want what you want to give me, Lord, and I will be patient and I will follow you. He's going to have offspring that are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Later, he's going to tell him as numerous as the stars in the sky as many as heaven and earth can hold. Lot chose the things that are seen, and he found them corrupting. Abram looked, and he saw through the eyes of faith the things that are unseen. And what he found was great assurance and peace. We need to be careful that we're not trying to get from the world what only God can give us. And I want to just end by asking you this this question. Am I more like Lot or like Abram? Will I reach for the world now and get nothing of God, or will I trust in God now and one day inherit all the earth? You see, the fullness of this promise was something that Abram would never see in his lifetime. The author of Hebrews tells us that. Abram actually understood that there was a future orientation to this promise. It was reaching beyond his lifetime. He believed that there was going to be maybe an immediate fulfillment of this, and, and you know, his ethnic people would get into the land at some point, but he would never see that day. But he actually believed in something further down the road. Even this promise to him of land and offspring, it pointed towards a future fulfillment that would ultimately be realized in the new heavens and the new earth. And it would be realized, listen, this promise, this guarantee was not just for Abram. I want you to notice what the text tells us. It was for his offspring forever. Now, here's the question you need to ask. Who who are Abram's offspring? It's not just ethnic Israelites, right? Do we know that? Galatians chapter 3, the apostle Paul says this, that we, the people of God, are the offspring of Abram by faith. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the true seed of Abram, listen, you are our offspring of Abram, he is the father of the faithful, of the faith, sorry, he is your father. And that means this, that the promise made to Abram is the promise made to you. Do you realize, church, that you too have been given the promise of a new heavens and a new earth? Abram in, in Romans 4, he believed that this promise was for the world. It says that he believed he would inherit the whole world. And, and we, along with Abram, are going to be the recipients of this great promise as well. Paul, or excuse me, Peter, in 1 Peter 3, he tells us that we have an inheritance. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you, and it's ready to be revealed in the last time. It's something that's coming for you, and it's coming for me. It's something that's promised that will never be taken away. It's guaranteed by the blood of Jesus Christ himself. Abram, as a result of this, he builds an altar to worship God, knowing what awaits him in the future. Listen, our worship is a way of renewing our faith in God and what he has promised, not just about our present, but about our future. Do you realize that? 
every song we sing, we're praising God for what Jesus has done, but we're looking forward to the day where we will see him face to face and we will be with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth and he will receive all of our worship and all of our praise because he's the only one that's worthy. You know, we need people to look to. We need heroes of the faith. And Abram is a hero of the faith. And we can look at him and we can see his failures aren't the end of his story, that God renewed his faith. But I want you to know this. He is not the hero of the faith. Jesus is the hero of the faith. And in Hebrews chapter 12, we're told that we look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. I pray that we would look to him today, that we would renew our faith in him. And like Abram, listen, we too would respond in worship of our great God and King. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are gracious and kind, and you are the true hero of the faith. But we thank you, Lord, that you have allowed us a glimpse into, God, other heroes in the faith, ones that we can relate to in many ways, Lord, their failures, their flaws, their sin. God, we're so thankful that sin and failure, they're not the end of the story for your children. You are faithful, O God, to restore us and renew us. And we pray today, O Lord, as we look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, that, God, you would be helping us even now to renew our faith in him. We want to commit ourselves to him again, afresh, today. Every day we have an opportunity, Lord, to choose this day whom we will serve. Jesus, you call us every day to pick up our cross and follow you. And so as your children, Lord, as your church, we want to say we want to choose you this day. We want to follow you. We want to be faithful to you. And Lord, when we fall, we want to return to you again. We want to renew our faith in you. You are all we need. You are all we want. And we pray, Lord, that you will receive now all of our praise. We pray this in Jesus' name.